Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting on the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and pulled on a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting on the Mind of Christ. For the past number of years, Ann Arbor-based Renewal Ministries has hosted the Summer Institute. It consists of several schools, spirituality, Bible study, and evangelization. People travel from all over the U.S., Canada, and beyond to learn, pray, and fellowship. This is an annual journey for a number of the attendees. On this edition of our program, we continue with the fourth of this five-part series from the 2007 Summer Institute Bible Study. Dutch Father Jan Leeson taught on the Gospel of John. His teaching today covers just a few hours in the life of Christ on that very first Holy Thursday. What really happened and where? Was Jesus really arrested? Each of the Gospels tell a slightly varying story. Father Leeson untangles it for us. Father Jan's title today is The Roman Process. Father Leeson earned his doctorate in sacred scripture from the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. He currently teaches scripture at the Rolduck Seminary in the Netherlands, and he serves on the Papal Theological Commission. After the mid-break, we'll have one of our favorite teachers. For the six years that put out into the Deep Men's Conference in the Archdiocese of Detroit, Father John Ricardo has been the first speaker. He's called them into a deeper life in Christ. He's challenged them to be better Catholic Christians, better husbands, and better fathers. For his talk today, he uses farming terminology. His title, Gripping the Plow with Both Hands. We'll be back with Father Jan Leeson right after these messages. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Ministries School of Catholic Bible Study in 2007, Dutch Father Jan Leeson taught exclusively on the Gospel of John. So far on our short series, he's talked a lot about the bride and the bridegroom, Jesus and his church. Today it's mostly about Jesus. He teaches about the events on that first Holy Thursday. It's the questioning by the Jewish leaders. It's a scorecard with an explanation of who's who. It covers the Roman legal process. That provides Father Jan's title, The Roman Process. Here is Father Jan Leeson. The hour of Jesus has come, when we have reached chapter 18 of the Gospel. Jesus already said so in chapter 12, and from chapter 12 to chapter 18, that long passage in between, five solid chapters, we were in the upper room. Jesus was with his disciples, the Last Supper, and he has explained many, many things to them. And actually, when we will read now chapter 18 and 19, 
you have plenty of occasion to go back to that last supper. Because many things that happen in the passion narrative find an explanation in what is said during the last supper. This passion story in the Gospel of John has a certain structure. It is structured, as they say, concentrically. It's like circles within circles. It begins in chapter 18, in the beginning, somewhere in a garden. Now, what we are familiar with is this. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, praying. But that's not there in the Gospel of John. We have heard the prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. In the Synoptic Gospels, the first thing we hear in the Passion is that Jesus is in agony, praying in the garden of Gethsemane. Well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is in a garden. The name is not given. It is simply said it is, in Greek, kaipos, which is not exactly garden. It means orchard, a garden of trees. The Passion of John also ends in a garden. At the very end of chapter 19, we are back again in a garden where there is an unused tomb where Jesus is buried. It begins and ends in a garden. That is the outer circle that frames the whole passion narrative. First you have the interrogation by Annas. That's a bit surprising. We hear in the other Gospels that Jesus is being brought to uh, Caiaphas, to the Sanhedrin, and that he is uh, condemned to death. Not a word about that in the Gospel of John. Not a word. Instead, he is brought to Annas. We'll come to that. Corresponding to that section with Annas, that is the crucifixion and all the things that happened there on Golgotha. And then the middle section, the longest section, is Jesus brought out to the Praetorium with Pontius Pilate. We will come to that later and we will see that that middle section again is concentric. But let us start at the beginning, chapter 18, verse 1 to 11. And I have received a beautiful new Bible, which I'm going to use, and I'm going to say something about this Bible. It has headings, whereas this one, which is the same text, did not have headings. You will have Bibles with headings, some of you will. Tell me what it says before verse 18, 1. The arrest of Jesus, right? Right. Wrong. The next heading, it's here also. The next heading is in verse 12. But read, and read carefully. You will see, Jesus is not arrested. He's not. Let us read it. You listen. Verse 1, chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When he said to them, I am he, they drew back. And fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word which he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I lost no one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. 
The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the chalice which the Father has given me? That's the introduction to the Passion narrative. The arrest of Jesus is only after this. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bound him. But surprisingly, in that first part of the Passion, he is not arrested. Not at all. What's going on there? Jesus is not in agony in the garden. You don't see him sweating blood and tears, as it is reported in the Gospel of Luke. He is not arrested, as you find it in all the other Gospels. But there are other things in this Gospel of John, which you do not find in the Synoptic Gospels. Small details, but they're important. One of the surprising things, really, if you read it carefully, is that they come out to seek Jesus with lanterns and torches and weapons. They come with lamps. And remember, it is night, it is dark. So if you want to arrest someone, a fugitive, and you go with lamps in the dark of night, you think he will come running to you? No, he will see you my love and get away. This is not very logical. Read the other Gospels and you will see they came to him with swords and clubs. It said three times. But here in the Gospel of John, they have their weapons, yes, of course, but also lanterns and torches. That's remarkable. So no agony? Well, yes, there is agony. And John knows that very well. You can sense it that he knows that in the last verse, which Jesus says, Shall I not drink the chalice which the Father has given me? He will drink that chalice. You know in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus prays in agony, Father, all things are possible for you. Let this chalice go by me. But not what I want, but what you want. He will drink that chalice. That agony, yes, John knows about it. But he doesn't stress it at all. He stresses other things. He draws our attention to some other things that are going on there. We will have a look at that. Judas is there. We know Judas, don't we? What did he do? He betrayed Jesus. How did he do that? With a kiss. That's true, but John doesn't say it. There's no kiss here. No kiss. How is Judas mentioned? In verse 2, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. If you translate it a little bit more literally, it says, Judas, who was betraying him, also knew the place. And we have that bit of information now. So it is a little bit superfluous to read again in verse 5. Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with them. We know that. Why is it repeated? It is said twice. Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with them. That is emphasized. John the Evangelist emphasizes that Judas, who was betraying him, was standing there. Who is this Judas? In his gospel, the fourth gospel, Judas has been mentioned before by John the Evangelist. And always in a certain way. He has been colored with a certain color. And John counts on it that when you reach here in chapter 18, that you remember that. So we will go back a little bit to pick up that particular feature of Judas that has been there in the gospel all along. The first text that we see is at the end of the chapter 6, where there is the multiplication of loaves. At that occasion, Jesus speaks clearly about himself as the bread of life. The true manna is not that what Moses gave, but what the Son of Man gives, who comes from heaven. 
He is the bread of life. And he makes that very explicit. Verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Very clear. But these words are not so easy. And there is a reaction. Verse 60, Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And some of them turn away. Not all of them. Peter is there, and he says, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. He stays. But then Jesus replies in a surprising way. He says, verse 70 and 71, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. Judas is clearly here associated with the devil. That's something. Judas is associated with the devil. And if we read on in the Gospel, the next time we encounter Judas is in chapter 13. That's the beginning of the Last Supper. It has a very solemn beginning, that chapter. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But then immediately after that, verse 2, during the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, it's only half of a phrase, but it's there again, Judas associated with the devil. The devil has invaded, so to speak, Judas. Judas let himself be invaded, become an instrument of the devil. And later on in this chapter 13, we see it again in verse 26-27. When they are eating, Jesus says, It is he to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. Because Jesus said, One of you is going to betray me. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. And then a little bit later, verse 30, After receiving the morsel, he immediately went out. It was night, dark. And that's not only saying the time of the day was, you know, like after sunset. It was dark. This is the hour of the prince of darkness. Judas is invaded by the devil. So when we are here, after the Last Supper, in the garden, and Judas is there, emphatically there, he is standing there, the one who is betraying Jesus, it is repeated. Who is really standing there? The devil. Judas is a stand-in for the devil. That's on the one side, Judas. Judas and the soldiers. But on the other hand, we have Jesus and his disciples. Who is Jesus? Son of God. Jesus comes forward and asks questions and gives answers. Now the answers that Jesus gives are very strange. In the translation it is always a little bit smoothened because it has to flow. But in fact it doesn't flow. If you read it, verse 5, Jesus said to them, I am he. In fact he says only, I am, full stop. And then in verse 6, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. 
So if you seek me, let these men go. Three times, very emphatically, Jesus says, I am. You know these words. This is the name of God. The name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. So Jesus announces himself with a divine name. We have Judas here standing, a stand-in for the devil. Here is Jesus saying, I am. Who is he? God, whom we have facing each other. God and the devil. Where are we? In a garden. Again, right. And this is what the gospel is getting at. Something is being corrected here that went wrong long time ago in a garden. Jesus, God in person, using the name of God, not unlawfully assuming the name of God, but rightly using the name of God because he is the Son of God, he is God. Perhaps it is a little bit clearer now why there are lanterns and torches. The evangelist wants to highlight something, wants to put something in the light, in the spotlight for us to see. So he throws light in. Look what's going on here. He's not focusing on the agony of Jesus, which is certainly there. He wants to show us another aspect, and that gets all the attention. We're going to dwell a little bit more on these words that Jesus speaks. I am. Because this is not the only time that he uses them. And just as in the Gospel of John, Judas has been mentioned before and has been associated with the devil, so that is very consistent. In the same way, the words that Jesus uses, I am, he has used before. And there is a certain consistency in the Gospel. So we look back a little bit and trace that in the Gospel, where these words are used, and they are used a lot. I bet that right now, even without looking, you know some of these words already. If I say, I just see this, these two words, can you complete the sentence? Jesus says, I am... There's a lot to say. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Seven times Jesus says, I am, and adds something to that. Uh, for your easiness, for, for comfort, I put them on page 14 of your handout. <laughs> By the way, this is a good thing to make people read in your Bible groups. Let them look for them. They have to go through the whole gospel to find them. But now a question for you. Look at the additions that Jesus makes. I am, and then, bread of life, light of the world, door of the sheep, good shepherd, resurrection and the life, way, truth and the life, true vine. All of these things have something in common. They all center around one concept. Life. I am the living one. Jesus brings his life, his divine life, to us. He is the bread of life that gives true life. He is the light of the world. Without light, no life. He is the door of the sheep that guides them to safety. He is the good shepherd who gives his life so that others may have life in abundance, Jesus says. Chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I give eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. You can do nothing without me. 
you are intimately connected to me. The same life force that is in me runs through you. This is how you live life. Okay. I am words of Jesus. But there's more. This little bit awkward expression, you cannot make a real flowing sentence with it. And that's why it is always a little bit modified in the translation. I am he. But that same awkward phrase, we also find a few times in the Gospel of John. A few times, Jesus uses that very same name of God. Chapter 6, verse 20. That is, when he is walking on the water, after the multiplication of loaves, he has sent his disciples ahead in the boat, and later he comes following them, walking over the water. And they are scared when they see him. And then he says, I am, do not be afraid. Or in chapter 8, verse 24, in the temple when he is discussing with Jews, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am, full stop. Or a little bit later, a very important one. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And this is a verse that ties in directly with the Passion. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when he is exalted on the cross for all to see, then you will know that I am. Or later in chapter 8, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Chapter 13, in the Last Supper, I tell you this now, that when it takes place, you may believe that I am. These words are words of Jesus. And when we are here at the beginning of the Passion narrative, and we hear him say that three times, there can be no mistake. This is God standing facing the devil. When God faces his enemy, what happens? God appears in Jesus with all his majesty. What happens? They fall. They draw back and fall to the ground. This is how we can understand what is going on here. Because if you don't consider that Jesus is God in person and Judas is a stand-in for the devil, it's very difficult to understand, verse 6, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's a bit difficult to imagine. Why do they fall, these soldiers, these big tough guys? Why do they fall to the ground? Only because he says, I am? Here flows in the gospel again the language of the prophets, of the Old Testament. Actually, not only of the Old Testament, of the prophets, but of the Psalms. In the book of Psalms, you find several Psalms that explain what is going on here and that make us understand where John the Evangelist found this expression. Psalm 9, verse 3. When my enemies turned back, they stumbled and perished before thee, God. Of Psalm 27, verse 2. My adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall because God is with me. Or 35, 4. Let them be turned back and confounded who devise evil against me, for God is with me. Or 56, verse 10. Then my enemies will be turned back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. And Jesus calls out, calls the name of his Father, I am. And God in all his majesty is there. And that's why they fall back. You see that happening in the Psalms. Perhaps it is difficult to see that happening. But what really happened, I think, is this. Jesus comes forward. But they are expecting somebody who is fleeing. Jesus knows that his hour has come. And in complete freedom, 
he accepts the chalice that his father gives him to drink. He himself steps forward. He takes the things in his own hand. He is the one who asks the question, whom are you looking for? It's not them searching him out. He searches them out. He's in command. He tells them what to do. Jesus is not afraid. Jesus is not trying to escape. Not at all. And this for the soldiers is incredible. They've never seen that before. Anytime they were sent out to apprehend someone, the person was trying to get away. This one not. Is it the right guy? You know, they hesitate. Is it really him? And that reaction, that first reaction that they have is enough for John, who was there present. He highlights that. Now there are many other things going on that he doesn't tell us, but this he wants to highlight. What is the meaning of the passion that is coming now? The meaning is that what went wrong in the garden long ago is now being corrected. There is again a confrontation. There is no arrest here. Jesus is not arrested. God confronts the devil. This is what is going on. Yesterday, we had the opportunity to read in chapter 12, when Jesus was coming to Jerusalem and Greek-speaking Jews were coming to him, that he said, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. The hour has come. The ruler of the world will be cast out. This is what is going to happen. This is how John introduces the passion. The devil will be cast out, out of this world. He will reign no longer. Sin will be forgiven. One more thing about these words, I am. They are so rich, short but so rich. In the Old Testament, in that long book of the prophet Isaiah, in the middle section of it, the section which is usually called Deutero Isaiah, the prophet speaks to the people who are in exile in Babylon. And when they are there in Babylon, they are exposed to many strange gods. And they seem to be powerful because that Babylonian army conquered them and took them captive. There is a danger for the people to fall away from the living God and to go over to these non-entities, to these idols. And the prophet Isaiah warns them about that, speaks about that. You can see that in Isaiah chapter 43, thereabout, a little bit more. And it's really worthwhile reading that. The prophet defends the majesty and the uniqueness of God. There is only one God. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Isaiah has to stand up for God, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. That's what it says. The same expression. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, says the Lord. I am God. And also henceforth, I am. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can hinder it? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and break down all the bars, and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentations. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. I am your King. This is the language of the prophets. I am, says God, very forcefully. In the next chapter, 44, 
It continues. Just a small piece of it. Verse 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it forth before me. Who has announced from all the things to come? Let him tell us what is yet to be. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. I am. This is the words of God. This is the way God speaks to encourage his people. This is what Jesus is doing. This is the language of Jesus. All through the gospel, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. This is God speaking. It is really him. So what we have here at the beginning of the passion narrative is God facing the devil and correcting what went wrong. One more detail before we go to the next passage. Jesus says to these soldiers, let these men go when you are looking for me. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? The gospel explains it with an earlier word of Jesus. He does not want to lose anyone that God has given him. There is a danger that when they are now arrested, taken prisoner, and possibly face a condemnation, there is a danger that they lose their faith, their trust. They have not yet seen the crucifixion. They do not yet know the love of God till the end. Jesus wants them to be free. Later they will come. Now it is dangerous. The same author who wrote the fourth gospel wrote also the letters at the end of the New Testament, the first letter of John. And there you see, chapter 5, verse 18, We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Jesus protects his disciples. He is concerned for their welfare, for their spiritual welfare. And right now, physical danger endangers their spiritual welfare. That's why he asks, let these men go. That's the introduction. Now we come to the first part of the passion of Jesus. And of course it begins with the arrest of Jesus. Verse 12. 12 to 16 actually serves like a kind of introduction. Jesus is arrested and he is brought before Annas. Verse 13. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And we are reminded of chapter 11. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. But there is something strange here. Jesus is brought before Annas. But we know, it is clear, that Annas himself is not the high priest. His son-in-law is the high priest, Caiaphas. So why, why is he brought before Annas? Annas has no juridical power, no political power. He used to be the high priest at the time when the Romans came in the land. They put him out of office and they took another one, Caiaphas, to take over the high priest's office. Annas is a bit older and they respect him. They may go to him for advice, but what he says has no juridical consequence. He cannot pass a judgment. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. And we know what went on there. All three other Gospels have long descriptions of that. False witnesses were brought forward against Jesus. 
that he said that he would destroy the temple and so forth. And we hear that the high priest in the end tears his garment and says, we do not need any witnesses. You have heard himself. He deserves death. That trial, the Jewish trial, is mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, but omitted here in the Gospel of John. There is only a very short verse that says something about it. Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. That's all. That's all you hear about Jesus and the Jewish high court. Nothing else. Instead, the gospel takes us to the palace of Annas, the previous high priest. And there something happens. And we are invited to see that. Because it sheds a light on who Jesus is and what the passion means. The gospel plays, if I may put it in that way, a little bit, with the location. Peter follows Jesus, but he cannot enter. He stays outside, in the courtyard. Jesus goes in, in the building, in the palace, and is being questioned by Annas. Peter is standing outside. Now, the gospel takes us first to Peter, that is outside, verse 17 and 18. Then it takes us inside, in the building, where Jesus is with Annas. And then again it takes us outside, where Peter is. So we have outside, inside, outside. That is the structure of what is going on here. It is nicely divided. It's easy to follow. First there is Peter who denies knowing Jesus. More precisely, he denies being a disciple of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. And it just strikes you when you read these verses how often the word disciple is being used. Read that. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. As this disciple was known to the high priest, he entered the court of the high priest along with Jesus, while Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the maid who kept the door, and brought Peter in. The maid who kept the door said to Peter, Are you not one of this man's disciples? Four times. And he says, I am not. What did Jesus say? What does Peter say? Stark contrast, right? He denies being a disciple. That is what he denies. If you read the other Gospels, you see that he begins to swear, to be angry, violent. Not of that here. Only he denies being a disciple. What does that mean? Peter says, I am not. And he's cold. Servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter, who denied Jesus, also was with them, standing, warming himself. Then we go inside. And inside, Jesus is questioned by Annas. That short section, verse 19 to 24, again, and you already begin to feel that this is a kind of style of the Gospel of John, it's the way he writes. Again, this has a concentric structure. First, there is Annas questioning Jesus. Then there is Jesus answering Annas. There is a servant who strikes at Jesus. Then Jesus again answering the servant. And at the end, Annas sending Jesus to Caiaphas. It's not so difficult to detect such a structure. The point is, what does it mean? I've noticed that in books about the gospel, Many times you find beautiful structures, beautiful diagrams, that's arrows from here to there and so on. I always loved those pages in books. <laughs> but once I had a professor and he said, 
no matter what diagram you can make and find in the gospel, if you can't tell me what it means, it's useless. Forget it. Just read what is there. So don't give too much value to these structures. The point is, what does it mean? And this structure, I think, can only help to understand what is going on. There is a middle, there is a center. In the center, there is a servant who strikes Jesus. He gives him a blow in the face. What does that mean? Well, we simply have to read. We know that Jesus was being denied by Peter. Peter said, I am not a disciple. The questions that Annas asks, what kind of questions are they? Verse 19, he questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. That's what it is all about. This has to do something with what happened outside. Peter denying being a disciple. Inside, Jesus being questioned about disciples. And then Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing secretly. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me. What I said to them, they know what I said. Jesus has disciples. He's a teacher. And he has taught openly in public places. Now the word that Jesus uses here for speaking, I have spoken, I have always taught, I have said nothing. Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I have said. That word saying, speaking, is repeated and repeated and repeated. It's a very special word in the Greek language. There are two words for speaking. The ordinary word is legain, to say to speak, legain. But there is another word, a more solemn word, lalein. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. It's a word that is known from the Greek Old Testament. It's the word that God uses, or that is used to describe how God speaks. This is what Jesus says of himself. His speaking, his teaching, is like the speaking of God. It's a revelation. He speaks openly, in public places. In fact, listen carefully to these words. I have spoken openly to the world. I am here, standing, speaking openly to you, right? But can somebody really say, I speak openly to the world? Is the speaker not himself part of the world? And he's speaking to himself also. You can only say, I am speaking to the world, when you yourself are not from this world. Then you can address the world. That is what Jesus is doing and what he testifies. He reveals God. He speaks like God. And he has always done that in all that he said, in all that he did. He revealed the Father. That is what he is doing. And that is what made him disciples. And he's being questioned about that. When Jesus has given that answer, there is a servant, an officer standing by, and he strikes Jesus with his hand. He gives him a blow in the face. Is that how you answer the high priest? What does that blow in the face mean? Outside there is Peter who says, I am not a disciple. I don't know what he said. I do not accept that. I am not one of his disciples. Inside Jesus says, I have spoken openly. He's refused. He's rejected. The revelation that he has brought to this world is rejected. This is what it happens. You read in the other Gospels that they spit on him, that they use a reed to hit him. So many things. They mock him. All of that John leaves out. He knows that that happened. But he focuses only on this one blow. 
It's symbolic. It symbolizes the rejection. The rejection of what Jesus stands for. Jesus came to reveal God. And that is everywhere in the Gospel. The Gospel of John is replete with what Jesus says, the special word. For instance, already at the beginning, at the end of the prologue, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. That is why Jesus came, to make the invisible God visible, to make Him known. Or again, chapter 5, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever He does, that the Son does likewise. In all that He says, in all that He does, Jesus reveals the Father. What he says to Philip in chapter 14, Whoever sees me, sees the Father. Jesus reveals the Father. And this revelation that Jesus brings to the world is rejected. That rejection is symbolized here in this one blow to his face. That is what happens here. What we have then is outside Peter saying, I am not a disciple. Inside Jesus testifying to his speaking, to his revelation. And that rejection, symbolic rejection, is framed by what Peter is doing. And in itself it's a bit paradoxical. It continues after verse 24. Anas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest, so Jesus goes out. But the gospel continues with Peter, and it picks up exactly where it left. Verse 25 is a copy of verse 18. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Again, Jesus is already out, is gone. So why are we still here with Peter? Peter again denies. Are you also not one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. And again, 27, Peter denied it again. And at once the cock crowed. What happens inside the palace of Annas, symbolically, happens in reality outside, in the courtyard. Peter denies being a disciple. What Jesus has come to reveal is rejected. But rejection of what he says is a rejection of himself. Because that is what he came to reveal, himself. He is the Son of God who sees him, sees the Father. And he's being rejected. Peter rejects him. What does that mean, to be rejected? Now it becomes a little bit more serious. We have said already, there is no Jewish trial. Jesus is not brought before Caiaphas here. We don't hear it. But he is being rejected. The reason why the Gospel of John does not report us about the Jewish trial has to do with this rejection. If you turn back a few pages, you come to chapter 3, 18 and 19. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Who is being judged? Jesus? Mm -mm. John doesn't say that, no Jewish trial. But he's being rejected. But that itself is judgment. Whoever does not believe in him, accept him, rejects him, judges himself. This is what is going on. Yes, there is a judgment. There is a trial. But it is not Jesus standing on trial. It's Annas, it's Peter, it's us who are standing on trial. Do we accept the revelation of God? For if we don't, it's not God condemning us. 
it's us condemning ourselves. This is a very important theme in the passion narrative of John. And it will come later more emphatic. In fact, it will even be said in the gospel here that Jesus is the judge, no one else. He judges, not by pronouncing a judgment, but by standing there and being rejected or accepted as he is accepted by his mother, by this disciple whom he loved. There are two options. The judgment can go either way, but it's not Jesus who pronounces the judgment. We pass on now to the Roman trial. This is the center of the passion narrative. It begins in verse 28 and goes a long way up till chapter 19, verse 16, the first half of it. But fortunately, it is very clearly subdivided. We are already familiar with this technique of John, having Peter outside the palace, Jesus inside, Peter outside. The same technique, the same style of writing you find again here in this center passage of the Passion. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the Praetorium. It was early. They themselves did not enter the Praetorium so that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have handed him over. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put any man to death. This was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to show by what death he was to die. Pilate comes out of the praetorium. This is where the action happens, outside the praetorium. And the next verse, 33, Pilate entered the praetorium. And if you start reading carefully from here on, you can follow what happens just by staying with Pilate. He went out, he came in, he went out. It's like, Pilate is like a yo. He goes in, goes out, goes in, goes out. And this is how the passion is narrated. You want to know where you are? Stay with Pilate, then you know. You see that there are seven sections in this Roman trial. Outside, inside, outside, don't really know. Outside, inside, outside. There's a neat division, except that there is a flaw. And that is a very curious place, because it's right in the center. And if this section C is the center of the passion narrative, then that middle is the center of the center. And right there, it's not said where it happens. You can follow quite well up to that point. There's a flaw. There he does not say where it is. And if you read what comes before, chapter 18, verse 38, after he had said this, he went out to the Jews. There he goes again. Pilate goes out. Pilate took Jesus, watched him, nothing happens. And then chapter 19, verse 4, Pilate went out again. He must have gone back in. But John, who is so careful, so extremely careful to note all the movements, doesn't say it. Because there is something going on there. And it is too important not to be seen. But it happens actually inside. Inside the praetorium. Where practically no one can see it. There's Pilate, there's a few soldiers, and Jesus. But he draws our attention to that. That scene. We will come to that, but I will keep you a little bit more in suspense. Because we have reached the end. We've been listening to the Roman Process. Our teacher was Father Jan Leeson from the 2007 Renewal Ministry School of Catholic Bible Study. He taught exclusively on the Gospel of John that summer. We'll conclude our series next time. After this break, we turn to an Ave Maria radio favorite, Father John Ricardo. We have his talk from the last put out into the Deep Men's Conference. 
You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Father John Ricardo was one of the founders of the Archdiocese of Detroit's Men's Conference. He's been instrumental in its planning and execution ever since. The last conference was number six. Father John was again the lead-off speaker that morning. The men were ready. He'd always challenged them to read more scripture, to spend more time with God in prayer, to be better Christians, better husbands and better fathers, better men of God. His title this year used a farming analogy, gripping the plow with both hands. Here is Father John Ricardo. Morning, men. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we give you this day. Lord, we ask that you would be praised and honored and pleased with everything that happens today. Lord, we ask for the grace to meet you. We pray for those of us who've been walking with you for years, that we would meet you again today and encounter you in a a deep and profound way, be fired up and challenged and encouraged and invigorated to live our lives as your disciples. We pray those of us who've come today who really don't know you. Lord, we ask that as you broke into the lives of Peter and Paul and Andrew and Thomas and countless men and women down through the ages, so you would break into our lives today. Lord, we are convinced that you alone have the words of life. So help us to hear your voice today and all the things that you want to say to each of us by name. All these things we ask in your most holy name, Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. As we uh, start this morning, I actually wanted to take a minute just to honor Paco. I never usually get to do that. I'm always first. But I had the opportunity several months ago now, maybe two months ago, to, to attend another men's conference, have a chance to, to speak to some of our brothers who were gathering out on the East Coast. And I was struck by the day. It was, it was a fantastic conference, opportunity to get together with about a 1,000 guys. But the one thing that I took away from it, as great as the day was, was how blessed we are to have him. He does. It could be so easy for anybody who's up here to let it be all about them. But none of this is about us. It's all about him. It's all about the Lord. And Paco does, I think, a tremendous job of having one ear to the Holy Spirit and one ear to us all throughout the day. And he helps us to be sensitive to what it is that God is doing here in our midst. And so I just want to thank you, brother, for the way that you do that and uh, to tell you how much I personally appreciate you. And uh, I'm counting on you to come and die for me. I'm very convinced, I shared with him the other day as we got together to talk a little bit about this morning and this afternoon, I'm convinced that God has a word for some of us. He's got a word for all of us today from all the different speakers that are going to talk. But I really feel like the Lord wants to use me, I pray, to bring freedom to some of us who have come today. In a particular way, I think it's a freedom to leave the past behind. Some of us are just chased and harassed by our pasts. And I think some of us have walked in kind of bent over, a little tired, 
a little drained from having perpetually been chased by these things that we have done in our pasts. And I think the Lord wants to help us to stand up and to leave here free. I was uh, leading a retreat a number of years ago now for a group of men and women who were coming into the church at Easter. We'd gone away for the weekend, about 40 or so of us. We went down to Ohio. This was Lent, you understand. So Lent would be a perfect time for penance. I went to Ohio. No offense to my brothers, who, some of whom are here, I know, who attended that university, but I did not. I attended another one a little bit farther west from here. And near the beginning of the retreat, I felt like God gave me a vision or, or an image that was really profound and has struck with me ever since. And he wanted to share through me with everybody who was there. And in the vision or the image, I thought that I saw myself in a museum or what looked like a museum. There were lots of rooms. There were all these square rooms that you typically see when you walk into a museum. And on the walls were what looked to be pieces of art that were all beautifully framed, all sorts of different shapes and sizes. And in the vision, there were only two people in the whole museum. It was just me and Jesus. And at a certain point, he began to walk closer to the walls, and he began to look at what I thought were pieces of art on the walls, and he just motioned to me to come over and to look with him. But as we got closer, I realized that they weren't pieces of art at all. They weren't paintings. They were pictures. They were pictures of scenes in my life. And they weren't, shall we say, the highlights. The walls were virtually covered with photo after photo of the most embarrassing, the most shameful, the most humiliating moments of my life, the things that I would rather no one ever see. And there were lots of them. And in front of each photograph, Jesus stopped and He looked at it, and then he turned, and he looked at me. As he did so, I noticed he was carrying something. He had something in his hand. And as I looked at it, I noticed it was a bucket. And as I looked closer into the bucket, I could see that in the bucket was his blood. And as I noticed this, my eyes just kind of kept going back and forth to his face, and he began to speak to me as he was looking at these pictures on the wall. And he'd look at the picture, he'd look at me, and he'd say, John, it was precisely for this that I came. And then he'd take the bucket and he'd just throw it on the picture. And the picture was covered. And then he'd go on to the next picture. Same thing. John, it was precisely for this that I died and that I rose. And we went through the whole museum, aisle after aisle, room after room, repeating the same thing. And by the time he got done splashing all the pictures in my life with his blood... I could feel myself, just like I described to us at the beginning, starting to straighten up, somehow able to stand taller, somehow more free, more capable of being able to step out in confidence, not in me, but in him and at what it was that I thought he was asking me to do, no matter how bad my past was. And my past is not that great. And again, I share that vision with us today because as I've been praying, I just continue to grow in this real conviction that God wants to do something similar with a number of us here. I think he wants to bring freedom. He wants to bring the strength to stop once and for all looking backwards at the things in our lives that so often occupy our thoughts and in one way or another, I think, hamstring us as men from leading. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Usually that passage is understood, and rightly so, as meaning something like, once we decide to follow Jesus as Lord, we need to make a break with our past. 
We've got to stop living a double life, which is what many Christian men do. Some of us intentionally, some of us not so intentionally, but we end up straddling fence, just kind of walking this fine line. I did that for years. When it was convenient for me, my faith in Jesus was there for everybody to see. When it was inconvenient, it was hid underneath a bushel basket. And many of us here, perhaps, still live that way. When we're in the church gathering, when we're here, no problem to stand up, maybe even hold hands, you know, during the Our Father, or raise our hands in prayer, whatever it might be. But put us in work, put us in the middle of a conversation on some of the hot topics, abortion, pornography, homosexuality, whatever it might be, and we might clam up when we should speak up. I think Jesus' words in that gospel passage can be applied in another way. If you're like me, I am continually tempted by the devil to remember the things that I've done in my past that I'm ashamed of and to somehow feel as though because of those things I'm disqualified and because of those things I shouldn't be up here because of my, my own willful choices, my own blunders, whatever they might be. There is, I think, especially for men, for women too, but especially for men, there's a constant temptation to define ourselves by what's in our past, by the things we've done. But in continually looking backwards at what we've done, how we once lived, even if it was last night or last week, we're failing to walk in the freedom and the grace that Jesus has for us. We're prevented from stepping out in confidence, again, not in us, because there's no reason for any of us to be confident in ourselves, but to be confident in him. And as Raja was talking, I find it most appropriate that this conference is happening not in Lent, but in Easter. All the previous men's conferences have taken place during Lent. Not only when we couldn't say Alleluia, we couldn't sing it in worship and in liturgies, but also where our focus was of a different kind. But this year's conference happens in Easter. And Easter is not a day. Easter is a season in the church. It's 50 days. 40 days of Lent, 50 days of Easter. There are 50 days to celebrate. I mean, to really celebrate. But I don't think many of us know how to celebrate in Easter. I think the celebration that many of us kind of enter into is we can go back to the things that we gave up during Lent. So I can eat again between meals. I can have a beer. I can have all the chocolate and the candy that I want. You know, that's fine. But that's not the celebration that we're supposed to be entering into. The celebration that God wants us to enter into is the celebration that enables our lives to change. That's the celebration of Easter that's supposed to be happening. It's a liberating celebration, a freeing celebration. And I think he wants many of us here today to really begin to enter into it. Paco just challenged us to stand up, to not be afraid, to let ourselves be known in whatever context that we find ourselves as radical disciples of Jesus. Not wacko disciples of Jesus, radical disciples of Jesus. That is, men who are rooted in Jesus. That's all radical means. Who live our lives as men whose lives revolve around the only one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the only one whose opinion of me or of you really matters. But I don't think many of us feel like we can do that because of what's in our past. Many of us, again, I think, really feel hamstrung by our past. But the celebration of Easter is about a new beginning. It's about a fresh start. These are the days of resurrection. Certainly Jesus is first and foremost, but yours and mine as well. And I think today the Lord wants it to be a day of resurrection for some of us who've been living one way or another in a tomb for some time. I think he wants us to walk out. Like he wants us to leave the past behind. Like he wants us to leave here as men who no longer are harassed and chased by what's in the past. 
We need leaders tremendously in the church right now. We need men to come forward as priests. We need men to come forward in parishes. We need men to lead in their families. But some of us feel that we're disqualified because of what we've done. That God will certainly look for somebody who hasn't blown it like I have. Stop thinking like that. Consider this for a moment. Arguably the three greatest men in all the Bible, Moses, David, and Paul, leaving aside Jesus, who's both God and man, huh? have something in common. Moses, huh, is the one called by God to lead his people out of bondage, where the Israelites have been for 430 years in Egypt. He's the one whom God uses to take on Pharaoh, the one to enact the ten plagues that we hear about in Exodus. He's the one who splits the Red Sea, enabling the Israelites to pass through and the Egyptians to drown in it afterwards. He's the one to whom God gives the Ten Commandments. He brings his people to the threshold of the Promised Land. That's Moses. David is the greatest of all the kings. He's the one God calls to leave behind shepherding this flock and to begin shepherding the flock of God's own people. He's the one who brings the Israelites finally into Jerusalem, which makes Jerusalem to be the capital of the chosen people. He's the one inspired by God to write most of the Psalms that we read or that we sing Sunday after Sunday. He's the one who's promised by God himself an heir whose kingdom will have no end. Paul's the one chosen by God to bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. He's the one who receives incredible graces and visions by the Lord. He's the one who writes half of the New Testament in his letters. It's really in large part because of Paul that the gospel spread so quickly in those first decades after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. But all three of these guys have something in common. You know what it is? They all committed murder. Moses, David, and Paul all killed other men. They all had pasts. They all had really checkered pasts. They all had worse pasts than many of us who are here today. They had blood on their hands, guys. These guys had vivid memories, just like you and I have vivid memories of the times when we know we have acted in ways we shouldn't have acted. Moses killed an Egyptian man when he was young, became so afraid that he fled Egypt and hid out in the desert for a number of years. David, a man whom God will describe at the end of his life as a man after my own heart, not only commits adultery with Bathsheba, but then in an attempt a failed attempt to cover up his sin, goes on to murder her husband, Uriah, who was nothing than a noble and loyal soldier in David's army. And Paul, back when he was still known as Saul, was a zealous Pharisee, sure in his mind that the Christians were wrong and that they were spreading something which was dangerous. And so he personally went about breaking into people's homes, dragging men and women out of their homes, listening to the shouts of men and women as their families were ripped apart and then was responsible for the death of Stephen and who knows how many others. Can you imagine the memories Paul has? Paul remembers the sounds of stones being thrown at Stephen. If he's like me, he must wake up at night hearing that, remembering what he's done, remembering Stephen's cries, remembering the shouts of the crowd who are there. Each of these men had to have been continually tempted, you can be sure, to remember what was in their past and to think that it was nothing less than absurd that God would call them to do something great. Surely men with past like that must be disqualified from leading or from letting God do great things through them. Well, apparently not. And then there's Peter, who is the favorite of many of us here, and I think my own. There's a really strange, I think, passage at the end of the Gospel of John having to do with Peter. 
It is perhaps my favorite passage in all the Gospels. We're told in John 21, last chapter in John's Gospel, that shortly after Jesus has risen from the dead, we don't know how long, he's appeared twice to the disciples, once on Easter Sunday, once eight days later to Thomas, who wasn't there on Easter Sunday. That's all we know. So we're told sometime after that, Peter's together with six of the other apostles, and they're up in Galilee, up in the north part of Israel. And Peter says to the rest of the disciples, I'm going fishing. Fishing? What in the world is Peter doing fishing? Peter hasn't fished, at least so far as we know, for three years. That was his old life. That was what he did before he met the Lord, before he had that miraculous catch of fish, before he was commanded to put out into the deep and to let down his nets for a catch. Peter doesn't fish anymore. What's Peter doing fishing? Well, we don't know, but here's what I think. I think Peter's fishing because he thinks that it's time to go back to where he once was because of what he's now done. I think Peter goes back to his old life because of how badly he blew it. Because of that threefold denial on always Thursday night when they arrested Jesus, began to beat the living daylights out of him. And Peter, who had promised so many things, turned coward. Now, to be sure, Jesus had made some pretty amazing promises to Peter, huh? Changed his name from Simon to the rock, gave him the keys of the kingdom, promised him that he would be the one upon whom Jesus would build his own church. But all of those grand promises, all those lofty words, all those noble things that Jesus said, that had to have been, in Peter's mind, invalidated somehow, given what he'd done. Holy Thursday night, member in the upper room, when Jesus is telling them that someone's going to betray him, Peter stands up and says, Lord, not me, never. I'll never do that. I'll be with you always, just like Paco just said. I'll be with you always. When things get tough, I will be there. Count on me. Remember this. <laughs> Don't turn Peter on me. Count on me. I'll die for you if I have to. Easy to say the words. Not so easy to do. And then when things got rough, when the pressure was turned on, when a slave girl asks him a question, what's Peter do? Turns coward. Clammed up when he should have spoken. Denied he even knew Jesus. In fact, he did much more than deny Jesus. In that last denial, when Peter is standing around the fire, what Peter really says is something like this. May God damn me to hell if I even know who he is. That's what Peter says. Surely after all of that, Jesus would go find somebody else. He revoked the promises he made to Peter, and so Peter goes back, I think, to his old life. And he starts to fish again, wondering what things would have been like if only he hadn't blown it. I think Peter thought that way because that's how I think. I think that's how many of us think, that somehow as long as we keep the scales balanced between us and God, everything's going to be fine. But the moment we somehow tilt the scale and we blow it, he just walks away and says, you know what, sorry, son, I'm going to go try to find somebody else now. You had your chance, it's over. And he'll go scratch us off the list and try to find another potential leader for his people or for his family or someone more qualified to speak up. But watch what happens between Jesus and Peter and learn that that's not at all what the Lord does, whether in Peter's life or in yours or mine. And I think what he wants to have happen for many of us here today. The apostles are out fishing in the boat. Jesus appears on the shore. They don't know that it's Jesus. They can't recognize him. And he asks them, have you caught anything? And they say, no. Now, is it only me or do you guys ever wonder how these people made a living? <laughs> they don't ever catch a fish. They never catch a thing without him. And so he looks at him and says, well, why don't you try the other side of the boat? Apparently they never thought of that. 
So they do, they catch a huge haul of fish, you know. John remembers, I think something like this has happened before. They run in, he says, it's the Lord. They all start rowing to shore. Peter jumps in and starts swimming to the shore, and he gets there first. And when he arrives, the gospel says that he sees Jesus standing there next to a charcoal fire. Now, it's real important to know there's only one other time in the whole Bible when there's a charcoal fire. It just happens to be three chapters before this in John 18. It just happens to be the place around which Peter was gathered when he denied he knew the Lord. It was, I think, the symbol that reminded him of the most humiliating, shameful, and embarrassing moment in his life when he denied Jesus. Pretty easy to relate to, at least if you're me. And now Peter, as he comes to shore, he sees Jesus standing right next to that fire. I think Jesus built the fire intentionally. I think he's built a lot of those fires in this building here today. I think he built it precisely to let Peter know that he has seen what he did, that he saw what happened on that horrible Thursday night or Friday morning when Peter denied the Lord. But he doesn't build it to rub Peter's nose in his failure. He builds it to teach him about the power of real mercy and forgiveness. I think he builds it so that when they're done with what's about to happen, Peter can leave in peace with a brand new confidence, no longer restrained by what's in his past, but able to step forward. At this charcoal fire, so far as we know, takes place the first conversation between Jesus and Peter after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. All these weeks, so far as we know, I think Peter has got to be on edge. He's certainly blown away by the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. He's amazed by what he's seeing with his own eyes. But I think he's also got to be wondering when the talk is going to happen. When the shoe's going to drop. When Jesus is going to light into Peter for what he's done. And so as soon as Peter comes in, they have breakfast. Jesus turns to Peter and he asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's got to be thinking, here we go. I'm going to say yes. And he's going to go, then what happened? Where were you? Why did you run? But Jesus doesn't say that at all. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus looks at him and says, then tend my sheep. And twice more it happens. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. And I think the third time that that happens, this wave of forgiveness has got to have rushed over Peter. When he realized he's been forgiven, he knows that the Lord has not revoked the promises. He knows... In fact, from his own personal experience of how easily and how badly a man can blow it, that he's now somehow going to be the perfect dispenser of mercy and of forgiveness to others. What happened at that fire, I would suggest, is what Jesus wants to have happen with many of us who have come here today in the sacrament of confession. There's already lines. May they get longer. He wants to sit down with us through the mediation of his priests to whom he gave on Easter Sunday his own authority to forgive sins so that you and I can experience, I did it right before I came out here, in our own lives the wave of release that Peter experienced on that day so that we can be free finally from those moments of guilt and shame that have haunted many of us for lots of years now so that we can no longer be defined by what's in our past so that we can put both hands firmly on the plow and walk forward living our lives as disciples of the Lord. Perhaps some of us have come here today with an addiction. Maybe it's to drinking. Maybe it's to gambling. Maybe it's to pornography. Time to get free. Time to leave it behind. Maybe some of us have come here with an affair in the past. Time to get free. Maybe some of us have come here with cooperation, involvement, 
coercion and an abortion. Maybe it was years ago. Time to get free. Maybe we've been to confession many times in the past, but we've never quite brought this into the light because we've been afraid that that couldn't really receive forgiveness. That can receive forgiveness. It seems to me that the beauty and the gift of Christian forgiveness, at least as we learn from that scene of Jesus and Peter on the shore, is that it is not vague. It's not abstract. It's very concrete. Jesus doesn't just tell Peter he's forgiven. He tells Peter he's forgiven for that, for that moment which most embarrasses and shames him. And so it is with you and me in confession. We get to hear. This is exactly the grace of confession. I get to hear with my own ears that for that, whatever that is, I am forgiven. One of my favorite stories of the saints has to do with St. Teresa of Avila, great Spanish mystic of the 16th century. The story is told that she used to go to confession herself And then after she would go to confession, she would just stand outside the confessional and she'd wait and all the sisters would go to confession and she'd just stand outside and then she'd greet each one as they came out. She'd put her hand on their shoulders, she'd look them in the eye and say, begin again. I think that's what Jesus wants to do with many of us here today. Just begin again. Start all over again. The world and the devil says it's not that easy. You can't do that. God says, yes, it is. I can do that. I can do anything. Nothing's impossible for me. Start all over. Begin again. That's what he wants to give us chance to leave everything behind, to leave behind the things that torment us and keep us from living in the peace and the freedom that he has for us. Don't worry if you haven't been to confession in many years. Most people only go to confession when they come to this conference. This is the highlight for many people of this conference is going to confession. It's been a year since my last confession. For some people here, that's because it was a year since the last conference. You haven't been to any of the conferences and this is the first time to go to confession in many years. Don't worry about it. Come. There's lots of priests here all day long. They're patient, they're kind, they aren't going to yell at you. The guillotine doesn't come out and chop your head off because you haven't been in a long time. Relax. They'll be very calm. Don't even worry if you don't know how to do it. Most people don't go to confession, one, out of pride, two, because they don't know what the form is. Don't worry about the form. The form is say what you've done. That's the only thing you've got to remember. Don't remember any act of contrition? Don't worry. Let the priest know that it'll lead you through it. Don't be paralyzed by those things. If it helps you any, I didn't go to confession for 10 years. Now I could go every hour. Probably should go every hour. Perhaps, though, an image might be helpful here. I often liken confession to going to a shower. Many of us have had the real pleasant experience of breaking a bone now and then playing sports when we were younger, or maybe not so younger. It's softball time. This is when the emergency rooms get pretty busy. And if you ever broke a hand or a foot, you've had the joy of wrapping your hand in a plastic bag so that the cast doesn't get wet. And then when you step into the shower, you stick your hand outside the shower so that it doesn't get wet. But the problem is it doesn't get clean, which you find out the moment they cut the cast off. Well, confession's like that. We've got to bring everything under the nozzle of his grace. And once it's under the nozzle of its grace, then it just all washes away. All we've got to do is say how long it's been, what we've done, and what we know we shouldn't have done. And then we walk out clean. I think Jesus, all throughout this arena, has built countless fires and he's going to be standing beside them all day long inviting you to come and to sit with him and to experience his mercy and his grace and his freedom so that you can leave here today profoundly aware that no matter what is in your past he's got great things for you to do he has great things for you to do every one of you not for Paco not for Mike not for me or not only for us, all of us. There is so much work to be done in the church and in this archdiocese that we are a part of. 
And the church needs you. Your family needs you. Your children need you. Your wife needs you to be strong. Your parish and your pastors need you. I need you. But I don't think we can step forward until we know that it's okay. Until we know that we're forgiven. Until we know that we're free. And no longer defined by what's in our past. For those of us who've been to confession, who've acknowledged already the pictures that are hanging on the museum walls in our lives, who've had Jesus' precious blood thrown all over those pictures, I think it's simply time to stop fishing. Because lots of us go to confession and then we continually keep looking backwards. Time to stop doing that. Don't do that. There's a great scene in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, when Peter, the same one who denied the Lord three times, is out there preaching the gospel and he's arrested. He's brought in in front of Caiaphas, the same priest who interrogated Jesus. And he looks at Peter and at a certain point he realizes these are the men who used to follow him. And Caiaphas could have easily said, but I know you. You were in my courtyard on the night when I arrested this man you're talking about. I know you. And you were a moron that night. You were a coward. You ran away. What are you doing here? And Peter could have said, you're right. That was me. It isn't me anymore. I'm forgiven that. I left that all behind. That's not me. I'm not defined by my past. When I was first ordained, I used to panic that in the middle of a homily, people that I knew from my past would stand up and go, but we know you. What are you talking about? What do you possibly think you're doing? And then I finally realized, fine, stand up and say that. I would simply say, you're right. That was me. It's not me anymore. I got my hands on the plow. I'm looking forward. Brothers, it's time to enter into Easter joy. Sounds too good to be true for some of us here, maybe, I'll bet. It's time to enter into Easter joy. God wants to break the chains, wants to break the shackles, wants to get us to stand up straight, wants to send us out of here with great confidence in Him, always in Him, only in Him. Wants to send us out. It's time to stop fishing. It's time to stop looking behind. It's time to put our hands in the plow. It's time to leave behind it, whatever it is. Your past, no matter how checkered, no matter how horrific, doesn't disqualify you. In fact, it just might make you to be more credible. It might just give you or enable you to give those that you're witnessing to more hope. Because if he can get you, or if he can get me, then he can get anybody. St. Moses, St. David, St. Paul, and St. Peter. Pray for us. That was Father John Ricardo, the opening talk from the 2007 put out into the Deep Man's Conference. His title was Gripping the Plow with Both Hands. Father Ricardo is pastor of Our Lady of Good Counsel Church in Plymouth, Michigan. Earlier on our program, we heard the fourth of five teachings on the Gospel of John from the 2007 Renewal Ministries Institute Bible Study. Dutch Father Jan Leeson taught. We'll conclude this series on our next program. Father Leeson earned his doctorate in sacred scripture from the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome and serves on the Papal Theological Commission. A CD of this program is available for $8.50. Order program number 329. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506, 734-930-4506, or email orders at avemariaradio.net. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. 
Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.